how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 402, where I sat down with writer, director, producer Timothy Scott Bogart, talking about his new film, Spinning Gold. My father's life was a very visible one, says the writer director. He's actually the son of 1970s record producer Neil Bogart, the co founder of Casablanca Records. If you haven't heard of Neil, he signed such artists as Donna Summer, George Clinton, and Kiss, the Isley Brothers, the Village People, and Gladys Knight, among others. This is the story of his life, Casablanca Records, told from the perspective of his son. In this interview, we talk about the justification of a life, like how he made a character out of his father, the difference between the two of them, also how writing is the ultimate creative outlet, how he had insider access to the story, how the story changed over time as he spent about 20 years working on this and did hundreds of hours of interviews with these famous icons from the past. And finally, what it means to write for the sake of writing. Tim gives one of the best answers about perseverance I've ever heard, so make sure you listen all the way through to the end. And look for this article also on the Creative Screenwriting website. My father's life was a very visible one. Um, you know, our the music he created was Kiss, was Parliament. And as a kid, that was my playground. You know, I grew up literally backstage at these concerts. So the the storytelling that I saw being done as a child um, was just infectious. Um, everything that they did um, was creating something beyond just the music. And um, and I just fell in love with it. And, and you know, it's an old cliche, but I had the eight millimeter film camera and I was out, you know, shooting, you know, stupid little movies, you know, trying to recreate Star Wars, you know, with my toys going on nylon strings. And so early on, yeah. uh, I was just fascinated by by visuals and, and by storytelling. Um, writing actually was an interesting thing. Um, I wrote my first screenplay right after my father died. I was 12 years old and it was a terrible screenplay, <laughs> but it was, but it was 120 pages. So it actually had a beginning, middle and end. Um, I, I think all of it probably was just an escape. Um, you know, my parents were divorced. Um, I was back and forth between Boston and LA, um, between them. And, um, uh, I just got lost in, in the fantasy of, of, of escape. And, um, and just loved making little movies and writing little stories. Uh, so I think I think it clearly began by being exposed to that extraordinary visual world that he uh, presented in life, um, and um, just just got me. Did you ever go down like paths of music? Was it always just something about like filmmaking? So interesting. Um, my my younger brother Evan um, obviously went into into to music. My other brother Brad went into music for a while before becoming a producer. I I didn't. I played music, but I never thought it was interesting as a business. I just love the visual medium. I love picking up a film camera. I love sitting there with a razor blade and little you know eight millimeter film and putting it together and create using firecrackers to blow up my Dungeons and Dragons sets. Like I, I just thought that was the coolest thing. And no, it was it was an odd odd thing. I, I never. Um, Never got me the way it got uh, the others in my family. 
So after you were 12, I imagine you were writing a couple more, let's say, spec scripts back then. Did you start to kind of find a voice? Like, what did you, did you start to like pick a lane or a genre or anything like that early on? You know, the, the, the film I wrote when I was 12 was a combination <laughs> of Back to the Future and Terminator before either were made. And it was terrible. It was terrible. But but it was a, I was a visionary. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> the real truth is, the lane was almost everything I did had somebody struggling with loss. Mm. Um, it, it's just true. And, and it could have been um, my first real production that I did, what was a, a live action version of the jungle book, mm. um, which I shot in Costa Rica, but that was, a, it was a modern version, but that was about a young girl who lost her mom and she was traveling to India and found this person. And I kept doing stories that were about other things, but ultimately they were about um, children longing for um, the loss of, of a parent. And that became an, an odd genre of, and, and it was fantastical and, and, and it was science fiction and it was adventure like in the jungle book, mm-hmm. but it all kind of had that core of loss and, and what that meant. And I think that probably is the, is the constant theme in my work. Hmm. Was there something else you were looking for with that? Like, I, I'm, I forget when it was published, but I would imagine it was copyright free. Were you looking for things like that when you came out with the jungle book or how did you, what was that first one? Like, did you were a writer on no, you know, I was um, early. I, I I went to NYU film school and and left after three years um, and started very early in my career. Um, I, I happened to to um, be given an opportunity by someone who had known my father actually, um, and they were um, in they were uh, talent agents who had kind of specialized in something called international co-production before anybody did this sort of thing. So they were shooting in Germany and South Africa and Canada, and what they were doing, they'd go into a bookstore. Mm-hmm. And go, oh, Black Stallion. And suddenly Black Stallion would be on the air and I'd be up in Canada overseeing that. And they'd go, oh, born free. And suddenly would be in Africa and I'd be overseeing that. So when I decided to go on my own, I was like, that was interesting. And I went to a bookstore. I was like, Jungle Book. So it was just my early education of maybe the value of of, of IP. Um, but then my my personal spin really was always very personal about the emotional journey of those characters, which was different than the other things I'd worked on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me about uh, Spinning Gold. Obviously, you're kind of the perfect person to tell this story, but when did it start to come about? You know, so I was 12 and my father passed away, and and it was really probably a year or two, no more, before people were banging on the door trying to get the rights. I mean, clearly, it was a fascinating story. You know, as a family, I don't think we were quite ready a year or two after he passed away so suddenly. Um, so it became something that as the years progressed, we as a family just kept saying no, no, no to a Broadway musical, no to a television, no to a movie. Um, and then as I started really looking at this being something I wanted to do with my life, I kind of took on the mantle of being responsible for the to be the guy who said no. Um, and part of it was I just didn't know what it was. Uh, you know, everybody immediately kind of leaned into, oh, it's Casablanca, it's excess, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was easy and interesting, but I didn't know that that was it. I didn't know that was the only thing it should be. And um, so I just kept saying no. I kept saying no. Um, it wasn't until 1999 where there was just enough people who had asked and asked and asked. And at this time, I had become a rather successful television producer, and and I'd been doing uh, more producing than, than than other things in independent film. And I finally decided, okay, I will finally do this movie, uh, but I'm going to produce it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to write it. I wasn't planning on directing it. I, I thought that maybe was too close, but I thought I should be the guy to write it because I probably have the best insight into the version that I think would be interesting to me as a son, to us as a family. 
but more importantly to an audience because I think I have access to stories others would not get. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in 1999, we set it up at a studio. Um, it didn't have a script yet. It was just, yes, we will assign the rights in an option and we will now develop it. And then it was, well, now what the hell do you do? What, what is the story? Because you could enter this story at any point because he had such a fascinating life. Um, and the challenge there from the beginning was, do you do just the sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Do you do just Casablanca? How much of a guy no one's ever heard of do people even care about? Mm. And so a lot of it, once we set it up, we kind of stepped back. And I and I went off for a couple of years and just interviewed people. Mm. Hundreds of hours of interviews. And I mean, from Clive Davis to Donna Summer, to, from Gene Simmons to George Clinton. And every one of those conversations just kept opening my eyes to really the most remarkable thing I think any child can do, which is this sort of forensic investigation of their parent. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amazing story. Yes. Amazing music, but an extraordinarily unlikely tale of this poor kid who was totally improbable that, that he would have had this success story. So I just kept researching and then still couldn't crack a script. Um, And it it was, it was years into that process where I finally kind of hit upon the idea that if he was alive, what was the version of the story he would tell? And mm. why would he tell it? And that began this kind of construct of this unreliable narrator trying to justify the actions of his life by saying, yes, okay, maybe I didn't give all the money I should have to kiss, but 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 look what I did do for them. Okay, maybe I made Donna Summer something she wasn't, but 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 look at why. And and it became this kind of justification of a life which I thought was interesting, uh, and the sum of a life. Um, and once I did that, once I kind of hit on that idea that it's almost the greatest hits of his life as justification of the value of his life, um, then the construct came pretty quickly. Um, and then this idea of these kind of two timelines kind of presented themselves to me where you follow a guy in one timeline where every damn thing works, but in the timeline we know will work, everything fails. And so suddenly becomes a bit of like a mystery as a biopic going, I know the story ends well with Donna Summer, and Kit, but but I didn't know it It started so poorly. I wonder why. And I thought mm. that was maybe a stickier way. In. Um, so it was, it was a really long journey of just figuring out what was most interesting to tell before I even figured out how I wanted to tell it. Did anything else change about the story that may kind of be intangible? This is kind of a weird question, but I imagine like stories I wrote when I was 20 are different than stories I write when I'm 35. The perspective is different. The things I care about, I've, I have a child now, so I'm thinking differently about that. Any of those things, I mean, over a 20 year period, how did those start to change about what this story became for you? Well, that's a great question. And and, and I I absolutely think it changed dramatically. And, and the way I think it changed I think if you were to read the first drafts back in 2000, 2001, um, it was it was very similar movie, but it was so much about the bigness of the events and mm. the, the grandeur of the insanity of how they achieved the events and the remarkable success and the remarkable lows. It was all kind of the, the most neon version of it. Mm. I think the older I got and and having a child myself and understanding what being a parent meant to a child and, and, and being afraid I wasn't going to be able to provide for that child and learning that my father, who everyone else saw as this massive success 
was on the verge of disaster almost every day of his life. That kind of reveal was fascinating. And I think his character became far richer in the movie I ultimately made about much smaller things, uh, much more intimate um, challenges for him. I think the relationships with the women in his life became infinitely more important in the story I ultimately told than perhaps a relationship with one artist or the other. I think the the relationships as, as deep friends he had with these artists became much richer than perhaps in the earlier version where it was more about the art and not about the artist. Um, so I think it became much more personal um, as I as I struggled to, to figure it out over the years. How did you possibly, you touched on some of this already, but how did you possibly start to narrow that down to a movie? It sounds like even with, all, you've done so much research, like I feel like you'd want to pitch it as a limited series or different things. Like was it, what did you want to see? Why a movie as opposed to a show or something else? It's interesting. There, there's many people over the years who wanted me to do it as a, as a mini series or an ongoing series. Mm-hmm. And I actually went down that road a number of times and started to developing develop it. And ultimately, the more I learned about him, because again, I think all, all kids know who their parents became. They don't really know who they were on the way to becoming, which is a real true statement. And to me, that was one of the most fascinating things about this journey is I really got to learn who he was at the beginning, who my mother was, who my stepmother was, who my aunts and uncles were. And so the more I learned about them, the more I thought, to me, the interesting story was his. And the more I thought about it as an open-ended, even a 10-hour, I think it became much more about the era or, mm-hmm. or much more about the world and less about the individual. And so while it was hard to, to sculpt out so many other spectacular stories that were even in the script that I just didn't end up either shooting um, or, or else to be um, cut right before we shot, which was the case right when we were starting shooting, actually a week or two into shooting, I was doing a whole sequence about Curtis Mayfield and and Superfly and and ultimately it was like there's just too much movie in this movie and so I ended up pulling that right before we shot it. Um, there's a whole sequence about the village people and it was like but we got to the end and it feels like the end and that would have been like it just mm. kept going on. But ultimately, I think what I landed on was the story about this person and it was this person who I thought was most fascinating who just happened to live in this crazy fairy tale. Um, so there's wonderful characters in this fairy tale land that that, that we knew, but the person was real. Um, and I think in, a, in an open-ended um, uh, event series or something, it might have diluted that. Here at Creative Principles, the focus has always been productivity and creativity. How do you combine those two things? Something we never really get into on this show, or perhaps just touch on a surface level, is nootropics. Personally, I've tried a little bit of everything. Vitamin stacking, adjusting my environment, exercise, but some days we'll just lack something. So I've been trying this product called Magic Mind, which is sort of like a single green shot or a nootropic with lion's mane and some other functional mushrooms built in. I've heard other podcast hosts mention it, and it does seem to provide a little bit of extra clarity, especially if I'm eating right and exercising. But it's definitely a force multiplier, so I reached out to Magic Mind, and they're offering a 20% discount on the product. The discount code for this is PLAYPEN20. P-L-A-Y-P-E-N-2-0, and that's magicmind.co playpen. That's magicmind.co slash playpen. All right, back to the show. Did anything about your previous work as a producer help you create like somewhat of a sounding board? Like I could feel like it might be so personal that you could get lost in it. Like how did you know that, okay, this is my dad, the character, not my dad, like some of those things. Also a a great question and um I don't know that it's so much as a producer. I think it's more 
as a writer, you know, I, as a writer, what I write on Monday, I hate on Friday, um, I rewrite it completely by Monday. I have been known to sit down, write a film, get to page 120 and go, that's where it starts. And <laughs> right. go up the first 119. Now I have writer friends who could never do that sort of thing. Every word is precious. But uh, but one of my early um, experiences as a director was directing some really low budget, terrible television. Uh, but the but the the lesson that I got there was I would write the stuff I directed as well, and so I would agonize over the script, and I'd agonize with the producers and the network to get there, and then I'd get on set and go, "Who wrote this? This doesn't work at all." So I learned early on that the writing was the 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 way to the journey. It was not the end, and so it couldn't be precious. And so I think that was more of, of um, the tool that I use in crafting this very quickly, it, it became not about my father. It mm. became about an incredible character named Neil Bogart, who was just, I got lucky enough that I had the rights to that guy. Um, <laughs> and so I found a ability to disassociate with the relationship early on because I was just fascinated by these characters and these stories. And, and they really did become something that I had distance with. It really wasn't, I was saying this the other day to someone, early on when I probably in the first draft, it was very personal. Once mm -hmm. we started getting into it over the years, it became not personal at all, it became storytelling. In the filming of it, it became very mechanical. Um, it wasn't until I was sitting there like doing a, a QC check on, on the final print and I sat there, I was all alone in this giant theater in Atmos and we got to the end credits and there's images of my real father and it hit me what I had just done, which was basically I'd spent 23 years making a love letter to my dad. That was very personal, but along the way, it really became very different. It was interesting. Hmm. A couple of questions from, from that. Uh, the first one is technicality. Is it is it automatically the rights go to the children or the wife? Is that kind of standard or do you have to, is there any like a will or something in place? So there's not, it's not a will question. It it really is, is someone a public figure or not a public figure? And in mm. this case, it was interesting. So my father was definitively a public figure, which meant anybody could tell the story. Right. So you start going deeper into the family to the wives. Were the wives public figures? Probably not. Could you kind of connect the dot and go, but they're sort of associated with this person. So as long as I don't slander or mm. libel, people can kind of tell a story pretty much about whoever they want to some degree. So it's not so much a legal thing so much as to do something while, about someone's life when the people who are part of that life are still living in there is a tricky thing. Um, to try to do it about all the other artists that are involved who all dearly loved my father and mm. dearly supported this movie from the very beginning. Um, that was important. Um, you know, Even getting the music rights was helpful to have those relationships with those artists. So could someone else have done it? They could have, um, but, but it's, it's not as easy, perhaps. Uh, now, the flip side is when it is you and it is your family, everyone immediately assumes you're whitewashing it. You're only showing the good parts. And and I hope that what I've shown is not that at all, because I actually thought that um, so much of, of what made my father remarkably successful um, was born in the remarkable flaws that he had. Um, I just don't think that they were flaws. I thought they were just fascinating character traits that just made an incredibly complex, messy human being that as a storyteller, maybe more than a son, I thought was interesting. As a son, eh, maybe it'd be better if he wasn't quite the gambler or quite the addict or quite the womanizer. But as a storyteller, that was great stuff to understand the human condition. Um, 
So I don't think it's so much of a, a legal issue so much as um, uh, just the, the complexity of battling against a family, perhaps. Um, yeah. And some I've interviewed some biographers, some of it's like authorized versus unauthorized or the family members game to tell the stories and that yeah. makes it more kind of authentic there. Something else you said too, in that same response is you're, you're open to get to like page 120 and throw out that whole first thing. Can you talk a little bit more of that? Cause I'm, I'm like obsessed with writing spec scripts for the sake of writing, even if it doesn't get made, like there's so much value in that. I see Can you talk a little bit more about that and just finding your voice and everything else? Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but early on, writing became my thing. It became my escape. It became a muscle I had to exercise, not five days a week, seven days a week, not one week a month, 12, 12 months a year. Um, if I'm not writing something every day, I feel I lose that muscle. And I never necessarily set out, this thing's going to be made. It's something that's scratching at me, something I think is interesting. Um, uh, some article I read. Now, sometimes I'll sit down and do 30 pages and go, no, that's not nothing. <laughs> um, but the, the act of writing, I think, is an incredibly crucial muscle that if you are a writer, you simply must do. And even if you write bad stuff, which you will, that's as crucial a part as the days you write good stuff. But if you write no stuff, then you're not actually a writer. And so early on in my in my career, it became not a career thing. It became a life thing. I, as a human being, would usually wake up about four o'clock in the morning without an alarm. Uh, that was just kind of where like the world was still sleeping and I was in a weird state. I'd get my cup of coffee, I'd write for four or five hours and then the day would begin, I'd go be a producer. But I would write every single day. Um, and there are, I mean, it's no longer really physical libraries anymore, but digital libraries of hundred scripts I've probably never shown anybody that were complete thoughts, but I just got to the end. I was like, man, that was a good exercise, but that's not something. There are things that I have absolutely written and come back 10 years later and said, that was a really cool idea. At the end of the second act, I'm going to pull that out and turn that into something. Um, so I, I have always seen writing as the ultimate creative outlet. Doesn't take any money to do it. Doesn't take anybody else to help you do it. If you want to do it, you can do it. If you don't want to do it, you won't do it. But it, but it's, it's something you're completely in control of. Um, and so I think it's vital for a storyteller to just write. Do you have any system in place for those piles of digital screenplays? Or is it more about just jumbling around your mind and something? Oh, I should go back and reread this. Like, how do you, anything else like that that might help people who have this collection and want to know what more to do with it, I guess? You know, the... I have, and again, from early on when I was directing my own stuff in television, I learned how, how, and it's a terrible thing to say as a writer, how disposable those pages are <laughs> because they, it's unfortunate, but the moment you put human beings and put it in their mouths, it has to take on a life of its own. Uh, but to answer your question, I, uh, without fail, every six months or so, I'll just open up my, I have a, I have an email um, filing system by project, you know, kind of by year sometimes. And sometimes I'll just scan through and, and, and look, oh yeah, I forgot all about that thing. And I'll pop it open and read it. And maybe there's something worth looking at. Maybe something's completely outdated, but is worthy of another look. Um, but to me, it's always, is there a kernel of something that I feel I need to talk about today? If not, I've never been able to chase 
I've never been able to chase like a genre or chase something, a moment of success. It's always come from deep inside me mm. um, where it's just something I felt I needed to say. And ultimately as a writer, when you talk about crafting a writer's voice, which certainly in television, it's so much about, do you have a voice that people want to, and I mean, people, the networks, the studios, did they bet on your voice? Not are you doing another show about a bar because that's either yours or it's not. Depending upon the voice or another part, you know, show about apartment, you know, as friends, is it friends or is it not friends? Um, I, so I think the voice is everything. And so um, I, I have to write something because I have to write it, not because I want to write it, not because I think I can sell it. And ultimately that's always been the best path for my success is when I just said, this, this interests me. Oftentimes that will interest someone else. If it really interests you and you can express with great passion why it interests you, oftentimes people will not realize it's an interesting subject or an interesting story um, until you you uh, open the page and, and you show it to them and, and you, you kind of lead them there. So I think, you know, for, for someone listening who's a writer, you just keep writing. You don't ever think it's done because it's never done until they clawed out of your hands. Um, and, and there's, no, you know, one of the one of the oddest things about our business is, especially in television, you know, you go, you sell a TV pilot. Well, there's 50 that that network's developing and they're going to shoot four and one will go on air. Does that mean the others ones aren't good? Just because it didn't happen that season, does that mean that was a bad idea or a dumb idea? You've taken a, a script out and nobody bought it. Does that mean it wasn't any good? The thing about writing is it's as good as it was day one as it is day a thousand and one. Um, and it's just enough. It's just about having the perseverance and the belief in it to keep taking it back out. Um, and I think some of the great success stories, when you go back and look at them, are projects that nobody cared about at the beginning, that died at the beginning, that that no one was interested in, and suddenly right opportunity, right, that right moment, and success, you know, felt like it was overnight, but that's not almost ever how that works. Outside of some of the personal aspects, was there anything about uh, this year, this last couple of years that made this the right time for this story, kind of from your perspective as a producer? Um, you know, interestingly, not that this could have ever been planned in, in a million years and, and certainly wasn't. I had planned to make this movie in 1999. So the fact that it's coming out in 2023 clearly was not a plan. Um, that being said, um, I think the music biopic as an experience is one that is meant to be a collective experience. People love experiencing music together. Um, I think you see so many successful music biopics whether they're great or okay, they tend to work um, when they're honest about what they're what they are, and people can ex enjoy them and experience them for what they are because it's a collective experience. And I think the collective experience has become fewer and far between. We certainly have the Marvel movies, the DC movies, but there's very little that's a collective experience. And so, you know, in terms of did I plan it? No. Is the fact that it's going to be coming out, you know, at the end of this month? Um, at, a, at a time where it really feels like the return of, of, of theaters is a real tangible thing and people are excited to be back in theaters and have a collective experience again. I think it's wonderful uh, timing that I could never have planned, but I'm certainly appreciative for. So I think the the experience of COVID um, sent a lot of people home, you know, watching stuff on their phones, all alone, isolated with masks and gloves. And the idea of going out and getting some popcorn, listening to some great music on great, you know, Atmos uh, speakers, um, I think that benefits um, this movie greatly. 
Um, but I think music biopics have always been um, a, a kind of dependable genre uh, when they're honest with themselves, just because they're a celebration of something that's just so honest and true and innate in people. You know, you hear a song, you re you remember where you were. You remember, was that your yeah. first kiss? Was the first time you fell in love? Your first fight? Um, music does a thing to to the psyche, and so I think um, music biopics have a a very you know. Um, a helpful leg up that they get to get an audience to like them, even if they don't like the rest of it, they just enjoy the music. So we're almost out of time. Um, I'm thinking about you getting up early in the morning, writing every day, bouncing around between stories, sticking with this one for over 20 years. Obviously there's some personal connection there, but tell me a little bit more about perseverance. Any advice for those who are out there banging their head against the wall, either to finish a draft or get a film made or something along those, any, any advice about sticking with it? Um, it you know, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but if you can do something else, do it uh, <laughs> because it's a hard business that will kick your ass daily with a bunch of people who don't know what they're looking for. Don't know what works thinks they know both of those answers. And absolutely, you can point to 100 reasons why that's not true. And ultimately, the only road to success is perseverance. The only road to success is having a stomach of absolute leather to take a thousand no's because all you need is one yes. They're hard to come by. But the only one who can drive to that place is the is the individual who perseveres. Um, the number of times I've felt kicked in the teeth so deeply that I just wanted to lay down and give up. Um, there's a lot of them, but I wake up the next morning and go, this is who I am. It's not what I do. And so if it's who you are mm -hmm. and it's not what you do, then you only have perseverance to protect the very essence of who you are. So I think the important thing for anybody, um, especially writers, is to understand you're not crazy. It's hard. You're not crazy. They're wrong. You're not crazy. They don't get it. And, you, and, and you're there. But your job is to keep at it until they do. Your job is to keep pushing until you're loud enough you get someone's attention. Um, look, do you think in a million years when these guys were pitching everywhere, everything all at once, anyone's thinking that's going to win six Oscars and make a hundred million dollars in a million years? No. Those guys, whether you like the movie or not, those guys persevered. And ultimately, that is the only road to success. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's the greatest lesson I learned from my father. And it, and it is one of the great reasons I made that movie. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. So many great lessons on the screenwriting there. If you're looking for some more information, though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new course called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, this includes shows of Gordon Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, you can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com slash television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com slash television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.